Welcome to Centerframe's podcast, Real Sources, which is a deep dive into the cultural and literary sources of the stories and themes we watch in cinema. Today, we discuss the origins of superheroes, and our guest is Roy Schwartz, the author of the book, Is Superman Circumcised? Welcome to Centerframe's brand new podcast, um, Real Sources, which is a deep dive into the cultural and literary history of um, the stories and themes we tell in cinema. My name is Bernard Pucher, and joining me is our in-house producer and uh, literary nerd, uh, Ariana Steigman. Hi. Um, Can you believe we're actually doing this? I mean, it's basically been, what, a year or something since we had the... the brainchild of lockdown, like so many other outlandish ideas we had i mean it all started with us basically like over analyzing batman returns and then we got yeah. having far too much time on our hands yeah absolutely but it's like this could be a really good it idea was batman yeah it was like we were completely off the rails with that one um but the good thing is it gave us some great ideas for episodes and you know we thought we'd start on the whole superhero thing and joining us is our very first guest and his name is roy schwartz roy thank you very very much for being our first guest Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. So let me just uh, give a bit of a breakdown of uh, your sort of credentials. Um, so you're originally from Tel Aviv, um, and but now live in Long Island in New York. Um, you've written for magazines and academic uh, organizations, law firms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, you have a, a BA from the New School University, but uh, more importantly, an MA from NYU focusing on 19th century uh, British and 20th century American uh, literature. Um, and... Ultimately, that sounded to have resulted in a um, internship at Marvel. You know what I mean? So you somehow ended up in the in in that uh, environment. So tell us a little bit how you got there and what your time at Marvel was like. Uh, so both of the schools I went to are in New York City, which is, uh, if you don't know, the Axis Mundi of the comic book world. Right? This is where it all started. This is where it was all localized. Uh, it's less so. You have more comic companies in LA and San Diego. Um, DC Comics, the second biggest publisher, moved to Burbank in 2011, so things are not. But uh, Marvel Comics is still here. Back in the day, they moved, even though they're still in New York, back in the day, they were in 517 Fifth Avenue, which is down the street from the uh, Empire State Building. And while I was an undergrad, I was fortunate enough to intern there for a couple of semesters. I worked with a bunch of people, uh, Chris Allo from the uh, art department, Sam Hetmaker from the toy department, uh, Axel Alonso, who was senior editor there before he became editor-in-chief, uh, and that was an education. I learned there uh, at least as much as I did at school. Yeah, I mean, it, um, from your bio, um, Did we you learned... get to meet the man himself? Uh, no, by that point, he was uh, in LA, and he was sort of a chairman emeritus. I did get to meet Stanley in other contexts. Um, we had uh, a couple of mutual colleagues. Uh, I may or may not have uh, dated somebody who worked for him for a little bit. So I got to meet him in a few social environments. Uh, and actually, my, my pride and joy is that uh, Stan the Man Lee once nicknamed me Roy the Boy Schwartz. Uh, so I took him up on it. And then another time that I met him, I printed a picture we had, took together a previous time brought it to him and said, you have to sign this with that dedication. So my my prized possession is a um, picture of me and Stan, where he says, from Stan the man to Roy the boy, Excelsior. Fantastic. <laughs> That's really great. That's really great. So just to establish your comic book credentials even more than that, um, from your bio, you basically said that you learned English from comic books. Is that is that true? Is You learned it from... Reading, from reading comics. Yeah, I must confess. I grew up in Tel Aviv, Israel. We studied English in school, but I uh, knew English almost as early as I knew uh, how to read and write Hebrew. And I picked it up from cartoons and comic books. I basically taught myself, which is why uh, I'm still comfortable saying things like swell and great Scott. Make <laughs> no apology. So how much of a comic nerd are you? I think this goes deep. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely an OG comic nerd, but... I like to say, listen, I spent three years in combat. It bounces out, you know, but um, yeah, I, you know, I uh, used to be a very avid collector. I had uh, 42 long boxes. Those of you who collect, listen, would know what that means. My pride and joy was a complete run of every Captain America comic ever published 
since um, uh, his return in 1964 in Avengers 4 all the way to date. This is the sad part of our story. Um, Hurricane Sandy, which is a very severe hurricane in New York, uh, destroyed my entire worldly possessions overnight, including my entire comic book possession. Uh, oh my collection. god! They oh, um, so had rare misprints. They had Liam Kirby signed issues. They had all kinds of crazy stuff, and it just all became slush. That's that's. I mean, it's it's a tragedy to begin with, and just to top that off, that's that's just heartbreaking. It really is to hear that. If we talk more about it, I'll start weeping on air. So, let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, moving on then. Yeah, let's move on. Let's let's bring this let's bring this back to storytelling, shall we? Um, so, um, just to kick things off, right? So, um, obviously, uh, Superman is a twentieth uh, century um, uh, uh, icon, but what he's based on is obviously much older than that. But even before that, the origins of the superhero story is even older than that. You know, so I was wondering if you could rewind us to where superheroes came from or heroes even yeah i mean maybe even before they were super but i mean i guess if we're talking the first superhero story where do we start what's the real beginning um yeah i mean it's like evolution what came first the chicken or the egg depends on your definition of chicken and definition of egg um but the superhero concept goes all the way back to the very beginning the first story ever told is a superhero story uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a Sumerian cuneiform epic right, written in stone, uh, dating to around 3200 uh, BCE, is essentially a superhero story. And it's the first recorded story we know of. And it tells of Gilgamesh, who is uh, one-third god. How that works, I don't know, but he's one-third god, and he has superpowers. He's strong, he has stamina, he's very fast. And... He goes on a quest full of adventures to fight monsters and other gods for uh, glory and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the gods, the other gods do not want him to embark on this quest. And so they create his foil and Kido the wild man and send him to stop him. And they meet, they fight, they realize they are actually cut of the same cloth, become best buddies, and then they uh, team up to take down the gods. So even this kind of Batman v Superman concept, the team-up cliche of comic books where two heroes meet, fight due to a misunderstanding or different methods, and then team up, um, can be traced all the way back to the very first story. And you know, this concept, these stories were so compelling that we had to invent the written word. The 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 um, we had to be able to share them perpetually, right? Uh, and I think that's great. That said, the concept of heroism, even when you go into much uh, later antiquity, Greco-Roman and all that kind of stuff, is not rooted in public service. You look at Hercules, you look at Jason and the Argonauts, you look at all these guys, they fought for glory, they fought for personal score setting, they fought for riches, they fought for um, uh, eternal fame, or et cetera, et cetera. And while they sometimes defended the weakling, innocent villagers or whatever from, from the monster, uh, you know, like Grendel and Beowulf, uh, it still wasn't for the benefit of these people. It still wasn't a concept of public service. That idea of the leader as servant, of the hero as a protector of the weak, really can be traced back to the Bible, to the Hebrew Bible, to um, Moses and Samson and David and Solomon and all these people who were really uh, uh, pretty normal uh, people with all the faults that were the right people for that job at the right time and really dedicated themselves in service of their community. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and let's talk about Samson a bit more. I mean, I, I remember you and I had so talked about Samson in in regards to... Because I think he's the only like physically strong man in the Bible, as far as I can remember. The only one depicted as physically strong and not just morally and not just with charisma and high morality. It's, he's physically, you know, buff. Yes, he's the original muscle-bound uh, uh, strong man. And he is mostly famous for super strength, right? Uh, back in the day, before you could reference uh, Superman and say, what am I, Superman? Or what am I, the Hulk? You'd say, what am I, Samson? That was the thing to say. Uh, he was shorthand for great strength. But what people, um, what, what's worth remembering, he also had super speed. The Bible tells that he outran and caught 300 foxes. 
uh, and he, according to uh, the, the Midrash, there's a story where he leaps in a single bound from Tzor'ah to Eshta'ol, two ancient towns about four miles apart. He, he leaps in a single bound. Um, and don't forget that Samson was a judge, right? He was, he's in the book of Judges. He fought in the name of truth and justice. Um, he, and in, so Superman was created by two Jewish teenagers, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I'm sure we'll get to them in a minute. And Jerry Siegel wrote a memoir that was never published and lost to the ages. And in it, he references Samson as a strong influence on the creation of Superman. So Samson is very deliberately, very consciously a precursor to this concept. I mean, that brings us perfectly to your book, because um, you wrote um, uh, Is Superman Circumcised, which um, obviously you can see it a little bit in your camera, but I'm going to hold it up. Um, for all the people watching, if you're not watching, you should you can watch the video on our website, centerframe.com, um, uh, in full. So, uh, yes, is Superman circumcised? Um, uh, the complete Jewish history of the world's greatest hero. So, um, before we continue sort of with the story uh, telling, I want to sort of find out from you how you got to this. Like, what was sort of the inspiration to writing the book? Um, where did you get started, and um, how did you get to a book form? Because I don't think you started with a book form, did you? Good, good. Yeah, correct. You did your homework, I see. Um, <laughs> so I, I was always into comic books. I was always into pop culture phenomena in general, as um, not just as a fan, but certainly first and foremost as a fan, but also um, as, you know, in the context of my academic career, these are cultural documents. These are historical documents. These are artistic documents. Even if you think that comic books are not serious art or literature, fine. But they're still reflections of the time and place that produced them. And as such, they have a certain value. Um, Charles Dickens, to remind you, started as these penny dreadful, you know, uh, serialized magazine for the commoners. And today it's classic Victorian English. So it all starts from somewhere. And I wrote most of my papers in undergrad and grad school about... um, comic books in, in pop culture. I wrote a, you know, my, my senior paper in undergrad was a 15-page paper about Starship Troopers, about um, themes of indoctrination and humanization. Uh, and I remember the, the professor gave me an A and said, I can't believe I'm giving you an A about a paper about FN Starship Troopers. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I stand behind it. So, you As know, you should, seriously. Like, yeah, worst things have gotten A's. So this sounds great to me. I'd read it. I really appreciate know. that, yeah. Um, and the, I also feel it's a misunderstood movie, but that's its own podcast. We can, we can do yeah. that another time. And <laughs> the, in grad school, so I've always also had interest in my Jewish background. I've always been well-read. I've always been decently conversed. I always said I can carry on a conversation with a rabbi. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm I was pretty well, uh, educated Jew as far as these things go. Um, secular, but with a lot of interest in my culture and background, uh, and the wisdom and beauty that are contained therein that I think is a bit of a shame that a lot of us miss out on just by virtue of not being uh, religious. And these things kind of came on to, um, these wires kind of crossed in grad school. And I ended up doing my grad paper, my thesis, um, about the concept of heroism in Judaism, the, the heroic concept, the heroic figure in Judaism compared to the Christian continental European tradition, which which they do differ pretty pretty substantially. And um, surprising no one more than myself, this paper, uh, which I had a lot of fun with, but I didn't take all that seriously as, as much as it was well-researched, won second place at the NYU annual thesis competition. Oh, wow. Um, Masochists like me have the option, instead of defending their thesis in a, in a room privately in front of three professors, we can get on stage in front of the entire school, there's an annual competition, uh, and defend it against three deans. And it's more rigorous, obviously, it's a bit of a show, and there were 420-something of us that uh, started it, and I got second place. Wow. Complete surprise. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, these serious studies about, you know, uh, uh, statistics of cancer through oral hygiene and pollution in the subway and a rereading of James Joyce's Ulysses and all these kind of crazy <laughs> things. And I was talking about, you know. Superman. Uh, I'll read yours over Ulysses any day. What? I said I'd read yours over Ulysses any day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> With all due respect. <laughs> uh, and um, 
Yeah, let's suppress. I ended up getting a contract with McFarland, which is uh, a pretty large publisher. I got a uh, fellowship from the New York Public Library. I was a writer in residence for two years, under which I wrote most of this book. And um, yeah, a few years later, we have the book out. Awesome. Amazing. I have to say it was a pleasure to read. Well, it is a pleasure to read, I should say. I'm not quite done, but it's fun. I mean, it's academic, has all the references, but it still flows. It reads very lightly and it's... And a personal note, all the editions you put in there. I had so much fun. I still am. It's really good fun Thank to read. No pleasure. Um, can I, um, um, since you mentioned it, I want to uh, rewind a little bit since we started with Superman. But there's, there's a couple of uh, parts of history I still want to touch on. And that's sort of the idea of um, the masked vigilante. Because obviously Superman's sort of... Uh, uh, um, uh, identity is 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 a bit on the inverse compared to the masked vigilante because obviously he's um, Superman outwardly in public and then his mask is Clark Kent, you know, so that's his secret identity in a way, you know. However, um, the idea of the masked vigilante um, uh, and the hero existed in the Middle Ages, you know, uh, with with Robin Hood and and I mean Arthur is a is a is a more of a just a hero, a more traditional hero figure rather than sort of a vigilante, but certainly. Um, the idea of the people's hero was definitely already very present with, in the Middle Ages. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, Robin Hood and King Arthur a little bit. Certainly. And Robin Hood was actually not even the first. Um, you know, in, in most discussions of the concept of the secret identity, the, um, the concept can be traced back to 1908. Uh, Baroness Husky, um, uh, she uh, created the Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, who, yes. uh, of course. He was not a hero of the commoners. He actually saved aristocrats from the guillotine during the French yes. Revolution. Right, of uh, course. God, and he was ago. basically Bruce Wayne. He pretended to be this dandy fop, but secretly he was this kind of nighttime Avenger who rescued them. Uh, he didn't wear a mask. He didn't have a costume. He just had this kind of dramatic moniker. Uh, and, and that's how it became popular. That inspired uh, Zorro in 1919, mm -hmm. I think, which started the pulp character who's really the first one to have both a masked identity and a dramatic nickname. Zorro means the fox in Spanish and sort of a costume. And the idea evolved from there. But yes, in uh, the British tradition, we have Robin Hood, by most accounts, Sir Robin of Lockley, who is right, the archer, sort of kind of a secret identity. Uh, in most movies, he wears tights, so it fits. He basically has a superpower, right, archery. Um, and actually, uh, Joe Shuster in, was inspired in his physicality of Superman's original design, as well as his famous akimbo stance with his legs spread and his arms by um, uh, Douglas Fairbank Sr. in his portrayal of Robin Hood, as well as Zorro. Uh, Douglas Fairbank Sr., by the way, was secretly Jewish, Douglas Ullman. He kept it under wraps. Like, okay, right. People. Okay, I did not know that. Okay, so secret that. identity, inside a secret identity. Oh, my God. That's like... Four secret identities. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of layers of metatextuality, for sure. And there's more. Sherlock Holmes, you could argue, was something of a uh, proto-superhero. His deduction and detection skills are basically superhuman. Who can figure all this out and observe all these things? Um, and he was also super strong, right? He was skinny and tall, but he could fight like a lion, all these kind of descriptions. And he was a master of disguise. He was also a precursor to Batman and that kind of stream of characters so there's definitely these kind of proto versions harry houdini is another one yeah actually that's a good, very good houdini point is an actual person another jewish person who hid his uh jewish identity can't uh, remember his, his real name now but yeah it's vice from budapest son of a rabbi <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah houdini know. sounds better yeah houdini <laughs> the um uh so yeah um and in regards to i mean uh, and then you you mentioned in your book um, uh, the art of Kamishibai um, as a as a as a sort of comic book ish tradition. It's not quite comic books, but it is a an illustrated tradition. Um, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, Kamishibai, which is a Japanese street performance art, is a not just surprisingly but remarkably uh, uh, incredulously overlooked. Uh, stepping stone in the evolutionary tree of the superhero, mostly because it's sort of like a, a Galapagos Island concept that evolved separately in a whole different stream and, and isn't really part of, of this kind of hierarchy. So basically, until the advent of television in the 50s, 
in Japan, one of the most popular forms of entertainment for children was street theater. You had these um, uh, merchants, these uh, people walking around, and they would have these drawings of different scenes, and they would switch these these uh, art pieces and tell the story, do all the voices, act out the characters, tell these great adventures, and children would sit around and listen and uh, pay for that. It was street theater. Mm-hmm. And at its peak, uh, that had a daily audience of about 5 million people. Oh, wow. It was an industry of 50,000 people. It was huge. And um, they had these adventure stories featuring uh, costumed superhuman protagonists, mostly children and teenagers in these roles, um, that fought evil. And some of them had colorful, colorful outfits. Some had superheroes like Golden Bat, uh, Goldobato, which is... Uh, for, don't ask me why, named after a cheap brand of cigarettes. And he fought, <laughs> okay. fought uh, uh, spacemen with visible brains, and he fought an evil version of himself and mad scientists. Mm-hmm. And he even had a secret fortress in the Japanese, uh, slowing down the Japanese Alps, right? And um, uh, there was another one, the, the Prince of Gama, who was a street urchin from another planet. He was a prince from another planet who crashed land here, became a street urchin, but also help the innocent. These are all tropes that are very familiar. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but the thing is that these really evolved separately, and sort of that evolution tree died off separately without ever influencing the American branch. Uh, nobody here would have likely heard of any of this back in you know 1920s uh, America, and in then closer Japan. Uh, things like Moses and Samson were not common knowledge uh, cultural concepts. So it goes back to things like Jungian collective unconscious and archetypes, universal archetypes, and um, uh, what's his name, the comparative mythologist Campbell, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, for for the Uh, monomyth, uh, the hero monomyth. Vladimir Prov, the morphology. Basically, there's nothing new under the sun. Is the good book says, right? So it goes back to that. You mentioned Moses. I mean, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, the way they reach Earth, right? They're both sent and they caught away from disaster to avoid. Uh, the Superman, you mean now, yeah? Well, Superman yeah. was sent from the to avoid the extinction of uh, of planet Krypton. Yeah. And Moses was sent to avoid the the death of all male children and the people of Israel. So I mean, it's not a coincidence, obviously. I mean has to be yes, drawn that, upon. that was the obvious to the to the point of explicit um yeah. where very clearly superman's creators jerry siegel and joe schuster um Sigalowitz and shusterovich they drew upon her their culture you know they grew up in a jewish neighborhood they spoke yiddish at home they went to hebrew school um it was a very very jewish kind of culture and they drew upon their what they knew and part of that was uh, their jewish heritage and superman has the origin story of moses He's a little baby to save his life from the catastrophe of his people, as you just noted. He's put in a vessel. He's sent adrift to the unknown. He crash lands. He's found among, you know, in thick vegetation. He's raised by people not his own. His um, adoptive mother renames him and all that kind of stuff. And there's more to it. So what we just talked about, people have noted before me. I'm not the first one to discuss these kind of Jewish parallels. I'm just, I go deeper into the Jewish side. I focus more on Superman. And particularly what sets my book apart is that, I don't end my discussion in 1945 because neither comics nor Judaism ended in 1945. <laughs> of course. Almost. These themes continue very heavily uh, to today, especially during the um, Silver and Bronze Ages, which is the 50s and 70s in Congo parlance. And um, you look, for example, if you remember Christopher Reeve in the 1978 Superman film, which if you haven't seen or you haven't seen in a while, you should really see its age very well. Uh, when he turns 18, he feels this calling and he goes on a walkabout. He crosses the wasteland of the North Pole where he creates the fortress the fortress of solitude. Whereupon he encounters the hologram of his father, Jorel, who, you know, in this kind of bright apparition manifests and says, you know, he tells him of his heritage, where he comes from, who he is, and sends him back into the world as a great savior. Well, that is the burning bush. That is Moses crossing the desert of Median at 18. Uh, coming across the burning bush where God manifests and says, I am the God of your father. According to a Talmudic story, he even spoke to him in the voice of his birth father, Amram, is to not frighten him. Uh, And he sends him back to the world as as a great savior. Uh, And there's many more parallels. I'm just giving you a couple of examples, but it's it's all there. There There's so many themes and so many parallels. Incredible. I mean, uh, what I find really interesting in this, and... um, is is that 
what what I've certainly even just in our brief discussion just now is that this this constant um, um, occurrence where a stage name or a or your real name is either obscured or completely changed or hidden and this um, obviously is not completely unknown of um, as to have stage names in general but I mean Hollywood is riddled with stories of actors not using their Jewish name to um, to uh, be become either a director or an actor or something like that Um, and do you think that uh, idea of not necessarily wanting to um, be to uh, or, or being a minority um, um, and then uh, and having to use a secret identity publicly sort of plays into this uh, idea of why uh, superheroes and mass vigilantes, um, especially during that sort of volatile era where anti-Semitism was pretty much at an uh, international peak, I'd say, um, uh, in the early 20th century, um, is kind of plays into the appeal of what mass vigilantes and superheroes would become is this idea that, well, we have to disguise ourselves anyway, but if only we could be open. What what do you think? How do you, how do you, what do do you think about that? Um, Yes. I mean, that, that was four questions in one. I'm going to try and okay, answer Okay, okay, yeah, sorry. Like, I, I, I was just started rambling there, but, you know. No, no, that was great. I, it's a pleasure when somebody really does their homework and knows what they're talking about. It's always great. So, you know, you did the heavy lifting. But, yeah, I'm going to try and answer this precisely. In that is absolutely, this was a secret identity. In Hollywood, almost to a man, they anglicized their names, right? Um, and the same in comic books. Uh, Jack Kirby was Jacob Kurtzberg. Will Eisner was William Irwin uh, Eisner. Joe Simon was Jaime Simon, uh, Gil Kane, Eli Katz, Bob Kane, uh, Robert um, Robert Kahn, uh, Bill Finger, Milton Finger, Stan Lee, Stanley Martin Lieber, and I can go on and on and on and on. And they all changed them, and to the most part, they anglicized their name. Uh, Jack Kirby, for example, wrote and he drew under uh, uh, almost twenty different pen names, and almost none of them are Jewish. They're all anglicized, which actually pissed his parents off, but he wanted to pass, which was the thing to do. And part of it was anti-Semitism. In the uh, public imagination today, particularly in America, there's a little bit of whitewashing of history. And there's not a full recognition of just how uh, anti-Semitic the culture here was during the 30s and 40s. In 1939, the German-American Bund, the American Nazi party, had a march down Fifth Avenue, New York, the largest population in the world, over twice the size of the next largest, which was Warsaw, um, 22,000 American Nazis marched down Fifth Avenue from the Lower East Side to Madison Square Garden and filled it up. They had a um, large militia training camp in Yaphek on Long Island where they trained thousands of people in armed combat. It was a scary time. And these comic book creators got threats. They got death threats and bomb threats. They got menacing calls. They got people hanging uh, around the lobby. Um, and, you know, it was people had families, people had children. So adopting uh, pen names was definitely part of the um, safer thing to do, right? Part of the defense mechanism. And there's a great story that I talk about in my book where after Captain America punches Hitler on the cover of his very first comic, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, Marvel Comics, they start getting death threats. They call the police. They, nobody got back to them. A couple of days later, they get a phone call from Mayor LaGuardia who is, was secretly a Jew, and nobody knew. His sister actually died in the camps, uh, was uh, expelled from Italy. And he said, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, the children, I love reading Captain America. I've got you. And he turned the lobby of Marvel Comics back then to a police precinct. And it was really? constantly patrolled by cops for the rest of the war. Wow. I just love that story. And there, there's a million such stories that you know have really not been picked up on today, which is a shame. So I, I try to put as much of that kind of fun stuff in the book. And... So that's all historical context, but when you look at the thematic content, the thing to do back then was to pass. If you went to a Jew or to a Catholic Irishman or to anybody who who could look white but was not considered fully white by Anglos back then, if you said, listen, there's this thing, identity politics, and there's this thing, intersectionality, and you should be proud of your heritage, they would think you're on crack. They would think you're out of your mind, right? The thing to do was to pass as a wasp. That was just the the standard... um, line to to toe so jews particularly if they didn't particularly look jewish you know with the right mannerisms and the right suiting and the right look and kind of they could sort of kind of in most contexts pass for white and that's exactly what they did so you end up with characters you know like clark kent 
who was born Kal El, which is very Hebraic. El in Hebrew means God, usually lowercase g, who comes over from the old country, um, anglicizes his name to Clark Kent. Uh, Michael Shabon, the Amazing Adventures Cavalier Clay, writes Clark Kent. Only a Jew would come up with a name like that for himself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <is. laughs> and you're right, right? He passes for a Gentile. And if you think of his costume, his costume is this ethnic garb, right? It's the fabric that his mother wrapped him in before she sent him from Krypton. So what he has underneath is really uh, his ethnic clothes, his dashiki, his, his, his talit, his... So when he declares who he is, when he changes, when he steps into a phone booth or whatever, and he changes from Clark Kent to Superman, he's not just declaring the personal, he's declaring the collective, he's a one-man race, and he's declaring his, his ethnicity to the world. It's this kind of ultimate uh, assimilation slash assertion fantasy of having your cake and eating it too, of being proud in your heritage, but also assimilating. And that's something that any immigrant, especially back then, could... Um, could really identify with. And if you look at it from a wider perspective, he's a promise to the American people that taking in immigrants is worth their while. Back then, you know, you had the Johnson Reed Act from 1924. Nobody got in, basically. Everybody was left to die in Europe. And uh, Americans even didn't want to bring in as few as 6,000 children. There was a poll, and, and most Americans, 60% of Americans or something, didn't want that. And people say, oh, immigrants are there. Same stuff you hear today, right? They're treacherous. They're, they're, they're um, clannish. They're ungrateful. They're these strange people from the hinterlands. And, you know, but he was an immigrant who got taken in, who was raised on American values and who paid back his host culture in spades. And it's the gift of his original heritage that really gives him superpowers, right? That's what pays off for America. And he's a very potent reminder, definitely back then, you know, he's this all-American icon who's a reminder that being an immigrant from elsewhere is all-American. It is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Now, you mentioned that he was written, he was invented as a, a reaction by Schuster and Siegel of all the fears and stresses and anger they must have felt during, from all that was happening in Europe and, as you said, in North America, too, that they couldn't do anything. So they imagined up someone who could, if only, you know, who could fight the fight they couldn't. And he was originally what? The defender of the oppressed, wasn't he? Before he was a man of steel. So it's very That's much exactly his right. purpose. Uh, before he was the man of steel, he was the champion of the oppressed. And he was this pugnacious, butt-kicking, New Deal liberal. There was no question what his politics were. He favored rearmament. He favored interventionism. He fought... Um, uh, uh, all kinds of American Nazis and saboteurs and isolationists and pro-Nazis and all these kind of, whether by pastiche or literal later on. Uh, and it was very clear, this kind of manifesto, this desperate manifesto of the, the fear and frustration and, and faith of his creators. And they talk about this explicitly, whether it's in the memoir I mentioned or whether it's in interviews. Um, they were inspired by the legend of the golem, this kind of indefatigable, indestructible, super powerful defender of the innocent of the Jews, uh, Samson and all these kind of things. They even said that in their imagination, the S on his chest also stood for Siegel and Schuster. You know, uh, <laughs> Why not? You know, their avatar, right? Clark Kent, by, by the way, was based on their own real self. They, they sort of were the quintessential Jewish Nebeshi Shlomir Shlemazel guys. They were these kind of two Woody Allens, which is what Clark Kent is. And Superman was their wish fulfillment. Um, well, Kartik was their, their reality. And um, it's definitely all, all there. And this, this went unnoticed by the American public. It did not go unnoticed by uh, the Nazis, which we can happily talk about. Yes, please. I'm curious now. So I shall tell you a story. Yes, so, please tell us a story. Uh, February 27, 1940. Look Magazine, which is a big competitor of Life Magazine back then, was read by millions and millions of people, even more than the comic books. Uh, asked Siegel and Schuster if they would uh, uh, write a two-page story for them. And they came up with a story called How Superman Would Win the War, which is non-canonical, although canon wasn't a concept really back then. Uh, Superman basically uh, just strolls through the Siegfried line, the impregnable you know, Germany-France uh, um, uh, line, West Law. He twists Nazi cannons into pretzels. He swats the Luftwaffe out of the sky like flies, uh, makes a mockery of all the, the Nazi forces. He plucks Hitler and Stalin by the scruff of their necks like two little naughty boys. Um, Stalin, by the way, back then was an ally of Hitler following uh, uh, Ribbentrop Molotov, but Hitler would break that two months later. And he dragged them before the League of Nations uh, to stand trial for war crimes. 
And the thing is, okay, this was done almost two years before Pearl Harbor at a time where the vast majority of the American public was staunchly against intervention and most entertainment industries were walking in eggshells to not upset, you know, the, the pro-Germans, the European market, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's a two-page story in a magazine. It's playful. It's a kid's comic book character long before that was considered any kind of viable entertainment. You know, who cares, right? The Nazis cared a lot. Really? And the SS, the Nazi SS, had their own newspaper called the Schwarze Court, the Black Court. And in it, they went on this full-page tirade that, by some accounts, is attributed to Joseph Goebbels himself, uh, attacking uh, Jerry Siegel in this um, particular piece as Jewish propaganda to, and you can't make this stuff up, this is the beauty of history, and I'm more or less quoting verbatim, it's Jewish propaganda to brainwash impressionable American youth with false Jewish values, like defending the innocent and helping the weak, and et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, they had this kind of warped Nietzschean, like Ubermensch, survival of the fittest, Lebensraum, master race kind of nonsense. So for them, this was warped values, you know, this strong guy who's clearly should be Aryan and he's just behaving like a Jew, helping weak people. And it's just great to, to read that thing. I put the whole thing translated, you know, word for word, the whole thing in the book. And because I didn't want to edit it. It was just too good. It sounds amazing. It sounds and, too good to be true. Uh, it's what? It sounds too perfect to be true. Like you play into all the tropes. Like just you come up with paper, this stuff, right? You know? And um, this was reported on pretty heavily in, in the States back then, how two Jewish youths, there were 25 at the time, kind of poked their finger in Hitler's eye, right? They kind of ruffled the feathers of the vaunted master race. And uh, there were some accounts, although of, of dubious authenticity, that Goebbels even had a conniption about it in the middle of a Reichstag meeting. Uh, either way, it's pretty clear that he knew about it. Uh, I'm going to choose to believe it, even though I'm, I'm not sure. Why not? And, um, Sometimes you have to see, believe the story. Just roll with the story, you know. Um, right, right. So right. Don't let fi- sometimes don't let facts get in the way of a good story, you know. Right. Exactly. We're gonna we're gonna go with it for the the dramatization. If I ever did a documentary, I would include that basically. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, somebody <laughs> screaming in German in the middle of a, of a yeah. And um, uh, they actually had the last the last laugh though, Siegel and Schuster, because in Superman twenty five, which came out a bit later, they they trolled them back basically. They lampooned the Nazis and particularly the arguments the Nazis make in this article. Uh, and they have Superman basically slap them around, and uh, the Nazis want to get back at Superman's creators in this kind of wonderfully meta-textually layered story for turning Hitler into the laughingstock of the world through their comics, and they draw Superman as this kind of simple-minded, bare-legged, you know, uh, uh, buffoon who basically makes a mockery of the Nazis, and it's just a, it's this great mimesis, anti-mimesis, mimetic circle, back and forth and back and forth. It's just great to trace that. Wow. Uh, that's fantastic. history. That's, that's incredible. That's, absolutely incredible. It's a great, great story. And actually, that brings me to a question. I mean, uh, it's considering the times we are in now um, in a post 9-11 world. And obviously, if you um, um, and clearly I'm talking from a cinematic perspective here, um, the um, the world of cinema has basically, um, the world of mainstream cinema has basically been, been taken over by superheroes um, for the last pretty much uh, 15 years as a the primary summary big blockbuster entertainment with the Marvel Universe being the most successful franchise of all time. I mean, uh, n- nothing else comes close anymore, you know, um, exactly, completely overtaken by it. and. Uh, certainly before Marvel was the big daddy in the block, uh, Batman and Superman were, you know, but those movies were, int- you know, intermittent. There was one as a comic book movie every few years, you know, it wasn't like multiples per year, you know. So what do you do you reckon that in a post 9-11 world where we in the 90s when, you know, the Soviet Union fell and we were looking, you know, as cinema was starting to become more ambiguous and was starting to become more... Uh, well, in, inward looking, yeah. It's like you're looking more at society. You're looking more at the at the at the um, 
uh, human condition and that kind of, that's what a lot of cinema became about that you know even the matrix which has a lot of um uh, uh mythology baked into uh, its its core is still about questioning your reality and what's real and what is uh, what is your own personal perspective you know it's, it very much throws it into um into people's faces but um with 911 the superhero became a focal point again you know um and uh and certainly um the success of it seems to be a direct um immediate reaction towards something more hopeful um I, I mean i don't know what do you think about that that we are now in this world i mean granted it's it's not fascism in the same way but we are certainly looking for simpler answers and we are certainly for a time looking for superheroes to solve this again or are we looking or am i completely overthinking this no i think you're absolutely right and, and there are a few ways to look at it and, and i try to be as as sort of um uh multi-angled in my approach when I talk about that section of the book. The book is most chronological. It ends sort of with the last 20 years. You know, 9-11 was the opening shot of the 21st century. And in that sense, our century has been defined by a religious act. And because of it, religion has gone from the backdrop in popular entertainment to from the, the background to the foreground. And you see that in things, you know, in the context of Superman in this book, you see that in things like the show Smallville, which is rife with um, uh, illusions. You see that in the Henry Cavill movies, even Superman Returns 2006, where instead of this gentle uh, allegory, Judeo-Christian allegory, this messianic uh, concept in the background in the old Christopher Reeve movies, all of a sudden it's not just very blunt, but it's screamed at you throughout the movie um, uh, to the point where it's, it, it more than once supersedes the story and becomes sort of a soapbox, I think, to its detriment. Um, and I think that's absolutely part of it. I think part of it is that we want saviors. We want, you know, it's become this moral gray. Everything has always been a gray area. It all depends on our perception, but our perception has become more uh, gray. And we're looking for that kind of validation of good and bad, of right and wrong. And superiors can really give that to us. Um, there's also, in, on a more cynical side, you can look at it as this need for strong figures, which is also what gave us characters like, uh, the last American president, you know, where somebody who's very charismatic and very strong personality, who has all the simple, uh, simple, easy to understand answers to all the world's most complicated problems, the fact that they're completely wrong doesn't matter. It's simple to understand and it's easy, to, you know what I mean? And so you have that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you have these superheroes who, it's also very validating because they, they look at the Guardians of the Galaxy. They screw up all the time, but they're well-meaning. So at the end of the day, they save the day. Wouldn't we, as as the West in general, and America in particular, want to see ourselves as that? Where, yes, we occasionally screw up, but we mean well. At the end of the day, we save the day. We really want to see that. Um, and you look at Superman, and from being super confident, he became a lot more introspective, a lot more consequentialist. Uh, some stories that worked well, some stories that was sort of a bummer to read, but... The point is that, you know, America being an actual real-life superpower post-9-11 and post-war in Iraq and war in Afghanistan and war in terror and all that kind of stuff, uh, the question starts arising, okay, what? not only what responsibility does a superpower give you to defend innocent and intervene, uh, but also what rights does it give you? And where do you draw the line between those two? And those questions were really started uh, being uh, explored more deeply in movies and in the comics. There are these discussions of, okay, what right and what responsibility? Not just should I do the right thing, but what the right thing to do is. And even if you do the right thing, what are the consequences that you're ready to face them? So you get all these kind of things. Uh, the Joker, so I used to teach at the City University of New York, and one of the classes I used to teach was called Bad Guys of All the Fun. It was the concept of evil and social deviance. And we had one class where we compared Osama bin Laden to the Joker. Because, quote, some men just want to see the world burn. Right? The ideology of Osama bin Laden, uh, a global caliphate, it, that's not realistic in any level, not really. So what, so what is the motivation here? It's, it's break it's stuff and of, see what happens. Right. So, you know, in many ways, there's room to compare him to the Joker, this kind of nihilistic, uh, 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 destructive figure. So I think 9-11 definitely set the tone for a lot of our superhero movies in all kinds of ways.
So in a sense, the superheroes are sort of today's mythology. So we had the Greek mythology and the Judeo-Christian mythology, and this is what we're doing now. There's simplistic stories that we imbue with all our values and our desires and our hopes for ourselves or for, for the world. 100%. And American myth-making, both in comics and in Hollywood, is heavily influenced by the Jewish culture that gave birth to it. Uh, Hollywood is also an industry created whole cloth by Jews who just couldn't get a job doing anything else, basically. No, and shmata um, business and the Rivka shift. Right. I, I mean, ironically, we tried so hard to become real Americans that we ended up defining what America was. I mean, how's that fire? <laughs> well, if you can't join them, make them you. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, the... Uh, I do want to, uh, there, uh, I personally have two questions for you. Um, uh, one, uh, I would, uh, and maybe they can feed into each other. I was like, I'll, I'll let you figure that one out. <laughs> but the first one is, um, obviously in comic books, um, uh, deconstructing superheroes has been um, uh, a common thing for a while, you know, but in movies, it's a relatively recent thing to actively deconstruct the superhero. I mean, uh, there there have been the odd sort of attempts. I remember there was Mystery Men in 1999, which was sort of a, a deconstruction of uh, of the Batman esque superhero. Gem. I completely agree with you. I think it's one of the finest films ever made. Um, uh, but um, obviously since then, there have been uh, a few different attempts at deconstructing superheroes. And the most recent, most popular ones are a, a, a sequel to Watchmen, to the comic book and to the movie, I guess, in the TV show, which I think is a fantastic TV show. And of course, also... I enjoyed it a great deal. Exactly. And uh, and of course, also... Um, the Boys. The Boys, you know, which uh, has a very... Uh, which is a, has a Captain America Superman hybrid in it in Homelander, you know. Um, uh, but of course, as opposed to being the good human, uh, he is the freak, the, the vilest person you can possibly imagine with all the power you can possibly give him. And... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I find that is a very, I mean, it's a very fairly recent occurrence, but the popularity has to maybe speak to some taste to at least, I don't know, maybe just poke at Marvel a little bit. It's like we've had enough of these perfect superheroes. We want to see. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I always found that, you know, if it were real, if somebody actually had these kinds of powers, wouldn't this person just end up, I don't know, psychotic or something? I mean, if you actually get, if you imagine that, I mean, I don't know, let, let me know what you think about that. I mean, you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Um, that's the theory. Phrase, yeah. um, I am not a cynic by nature, uh, so I would like to think that there would be people who would step up and do the right thing. Um, I think they are. We just are too busy being angry at everybody all the time on Twitter to notice. But I think there are people out there doing good things. And I, and I try to be conscious of that and look out for them. Um, and, you know, that's the beauty of Superman that, you know, it's not that he's without fault. It's that he is he does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Because his mommy and daddy, I mean, the Kents, not uh, they did the right thing by raising him. And, you know, Homelander is a psychopath because he was raised by a corporation, right? That's the... Exactly. Uh, and I think, actually, the world does need better good guys. I, I would like to see, you know, that's why I think Chris Evans as Captain America, uh, with all due respect to Robert Downey Jr. and all that, is, is the breakout star of this whole genre in the past 20 years because he inspires you to be better. You see, you see a Captain America movie starring Evans, and you walk to the theater like, I want to be a better me. You know, I can do better. I can, you know, I, I can step up. And I think that's what separates, or at least what should separate, superheroes from action heroes. You know, um, I love John McClane, and I love Rambo, and I love all these guys, but they don't inspire to be better. They just like blow stuff up. Uh, <laughs> and a superhero is a symbol. I mean, these are philosophical arguments in, in simplistic action, right? But it's still there. And you, you look at the boys, the deconstruction is fine, and that's great, and I enjoy it. And I, like you, I, I watched the boys. I really loved the, the Watchmen series. I thought it was, a, it was as good of a successor in TV as you can make to the original comic book. Completely agree Although with my, that. My personal favorite deconstructionist tale is actually not Watchmen. I think that's more of a um, medium deconstruction and a craft masterpiece. I actually think The Dark Knight Returns, same year, 1986, by Frank Miller, is sort of magnum opus. I think that's much more of a visceral, emotional impact of a piece. 
um, and prescient on all kinds of levels. So that, that would be my favorite. Um, and deconstruction is great, but my, my, I always ask, but what for? When you're done taking apart all the pieces, if you're not putting them back together, what are you left with? Just cynicism? That's a dead end, right? Just saying people suck, and if they had superpowers, they just suck super? That, 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 <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, put it like that, yeah. Right? I, I'm not a saint by our yes, I'm, just sure I'm sure a lot would. But... Um, at the end of the day, that's not what I plug into a superhero narrative for. Uh, it's about people trying to do well with what they have. It's about power of responsibility. And uh, with all due respect to deconstructive narratives, at the end of the day, I, am, I find reconstructive or straightforward narratives much more appealing. Uh, at the end of the day, it needs to lead to somewhere, is my point. Um, and this brings me to uh, sort of my personal last question. I'll give you sort of the final word, I guess, Ariana. Um, but um, I thought of uh, a bit of a uh, a bit of a character question about Superman, and considering how well studied you are in Superman, I was wondering what your take on this is. Um, Superman's personality—he uh, is two different people, right? Um, they, he's the timid Clark Kent, who three different people. Okay, all right, then. Okay, then let, let me let me present my theory, and then you can completely correct me and destroy whatever I just said. But he's 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 basically two different people, right? He's the the timid Clark Kent uh, news journalist who works with Lois Lane um, at the Daily Planet, and he uh, he's uh, basically you know. Um, uh, he, he's he's an easy bowl over, you know. What I mean, so he's basically he 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 usually you know has to, he, he gives in and doesn't this tries to not stand up for himself or anything. And and then you have Superman, who's the supremely confident, um, helps helps people, you know, um, uh, uh, goes and you know in 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 front of Lois Lane, he's he couldn't be more bipolar. Pardon the pardon the expression, you know. But he's a completely different person now. Here's a question. Considering I mentioned Hollywood earlier before, uh, and that basically there's the there's the there's the your personality, and then your there's can be your persona, the thing that you appear to be, you know. So the question is: Is Superman um, uh, the 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 way he really is, and then his persona is Clark Kent, the thing he performs in order to get away with things? Or is he really Clark Kent and then he performs to be Superman? Like, is he like comedians, you know, when they're on stage, they're supremely common, they do their thing, blah, blah, blah. But then when they're off stage, they're not often the same person. They're very, very different people off stage than they are off stage. Exactly. They're very different on stage than they are off stage. And uh, a lot of actors are that way. They They are not the personalities they portray to be, but needs must. And so they do. And I'm wondering in Superman's case, your theory, um, I'd love to hear your response to this one, um, is where does his personality um, sit? Is the timid side of Superman his true self or is the confident his true self? That is the great controversy at the heart of the character. Ah. I want to know, fans debate at conventions, is he really Clark Kent or is he really Superman? Who is he? Um, so this, I'll start with a short, simple answer, and that is he's Superman. The, you know, the, the narrative isn't um, disguised as Superman. They call it disguised as Clark Kent, right? He is disguised as Clark Kent. He was born Superman. Um, you know, I, I write in the book, he may feel human at heart, but that heart is not human. Yeah. You know, uh, Batman isn't half bat. It's totemic. Yeah. He, yeah. You know, yes, yeah, psychologically, Bruce Wayne died at the age of eight in front of his parents, and the person of Batman was born, and he adopted the... The kind of the uh, icon of the bat later on, and when he puts on the mask, the real himself comes out. Yada yada yada. He's a human being. The bat is a costume. It's a suit of armor. Done. Superman is Superman, um, and he pretends to be Clark Kent, whether it's just mild mannered or whether it's this bumbling klutz. So that's the short answer. I believe he is Superman. The more nuanced answer, and I think this is why the character is actually much deeper and more interesting than a lot of other. Uh, there are a lot of superheroes that really are not that deep as characters and sort of deserve the reputation of being sort of flat. Superman is absolutely not one of them. There's so much to him. And one of the, that's a false binary. Superman has, three, first of all, he has the ethnic cultural identity of Kal-El. When he goes to the Fortress of Solitude in his ethnic garb, he's neither Superman nor Clark Kent. He is Kal-El of Krypton, right? In touch right, with his roots. 
And then there's Clark Kent, and then there's Superman. And Superman is his personality, but it's also not the real self. He can't interact freely with society. He can't, you know, from the very first appearance in Action Comics number one in June 1938, he woos Lois as Clark Kent, not as Superman. He wants to win her over as Clark Kent. Um, Christopher Reeve did this great job in the movies where you never get a sense that it's two people. It's Superman pretending to be Clark Kent, but also it's the only way for him to interact freely with the people he cares about. It's this kind of dichotomy that he plays so well, which is what makes him one of the reasons why he's the best, my favorite Superman. Um, so there's that. But wait, there's more. Because there's really two Clark Kents. The Clark Kent that he grew up in on the farm is not the Clark Kent of Metropolis. He wasn't this bumbling, schlamierly, muzzle, klutzy, scaredy cat, um, you know, guy. He was just himself. And when he moved to Metropolis, that real personality, that became Superman. Even though Superman's more of a role, it's like a cop putting on a uniform or a doctor putting on his robe. And then he adopted a whole new Clark Kent personality, which is the pretense. So it's a bit of a false binary question. Right, of course. Superman is the direct continuation of Clark Kent from Smallville. Whereas Metropolis Clark Kent is a whole new pretense. It's sort of a branching, you know. And that's not as streamlined as the simple binary question, but it's more nuanced and more true to who he is. So there's really a co-substantiality. There's really like a, um, a holy trinity built into him in that sense that um, I think is much richer and more satisfying if you allow for it than just the, uh, you know, Superman versus Clark Kent argument. Oh, well, that, I think that's a fantastic retort of my uh, incomplete uh, uh, hypothesis. Uh, so <laughs> I will gladly stand corrected. As I, I, I have to admit, I completely forgot about um, his uh, his actual real persona, which is Kal El. Um, it makes perfect sense that he, of course, um, would have that. I mean, I, and I guess we as people and even characters, you know, interact differently you know, in stories, depending on who they're interacting with, like it's, um, we, um, I mean, at de facto Clark Kent, the bumbling news journalist is Lois Lane's Superman. You know what I mean? It's basically how she is willing to, it's how he interacts with her. And, uh, and that's why he is the way he is. And of course, then when he speaks with his father or when he is the superhero, of course, the personalities change and even people can be that way, you know, absolutely. None of us are just one thing. No, absolutely not. Um, I don't know. Um, okay. Um, do you have, do you want to add anything else? Cause I'm, um, I'm, I'm fresh out. <laughs> <laughs> no, kind of, I think. I think, there. Okay, well, I think we should wrap. This is a perfect ending to this, I think. This is, we, we wrap this up really nicely. So I'm just going to plug your book one more time. Um, is Superman Circumcised? Um, the Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. And as we just learned, um, there's a lot of Jewish history in superheroes also. You know what I mean? So um, it's worth reading. This book really goes in detail about um, uh, the history of uh, Superman, but also um, the history of sort of co uh, comic books as well in that sense. Um, so uh, well worth checking out. Um, what's a popular place to get Is Superman Circumcised? Would you like to plug your book a bit more? Hi, sure, why not? Uh, I'm like Stanley. I have no shame. Um, <laughs> it is Superman Circumcised, the complete Jewish history of the world's greatest hero, is available anywhere books are sold. Amazon is, of course, the easiest place. Uh, Barnes & Noble, I'm not sure what, uh, what the big chains in the UK are, but it should be available on shelves or for order so anywhere else. Uh, the e-book is available on yeah. Google Books and Nook and all those kind of things. Anywhere books are sold, you'll find it. Great. And it's a swell book, I have to say. It is a swell book. <laughs> uh, and uh, do you have any events coming up? Any appearances that you're making for this book? Anything? Any co other comic Yes, it's, um, it's Jewish uh, Book Month in the U.S., oh. which is keeping me busy. And I'm on book tour. I just sure. came back from Motor City Comic Con in Detroit. I'm doing a the wonderfully named Hanukkah, <laughs> which is a pop culture Jewish <laughs> extravaganza for Hanukkah in uh, Chicago next month. Uh, if you go to RoySchwartz.com, which is my website, there's a whole uh, page dedicated just to events. And some of them are virtual. Some of them are open to the public and free. Uh, the more, the merrier. 
Brilliant. And of course, if you want to invite me, uh, have you people contact my people and set something up. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Well, Mr. Roy the Boy Schwartz, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, It was a fantastic, and thank you for being the first guest for this podcast. It was super enlightening. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. Um, And I I really, really enjoyed myself. I really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you very much, Ariana, as well, for coming up with this idea. Um, Absolutely. Um, Because, I mean, yeah, you you found out about Roy through... Oh, yeah. It was a piece in Aretz. I still read the Israeli newspaper, Aretz. And I was researching for this, finding an inn, finding a thing, you know, trying to find material. And I literally, it was at my fingertips. Oh, look, there's a story about Superman and Jewish, like, superheroes. This is, that's it. I'm done. I don't have to write anything. This is all there. Yeah, um, very serendipitous. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you very much. I'm glad you found it. I'm glad you're enjoying the book. Yeah. I am really am. I'm nearly done now. It's terrific. I enjoyed the piece and I enjoyed the book. Ariana, thank you very much. Um, yeah. And uh, just to wrap this up, um, visit centerframe.com um, to uh, sign up to our mailing list. Also check out our social media for any updates. Um, in case you don't know, Centerframe is a community of filmmakers where we network and collaborate um, and fund films and help get them in front of audiences. We're in the starting process of building this community. So if you want to know more, make sure you visit the website and sign up to our mailing list. And uh, yeah, get in touch. We want to hear from you. And especially if you have anything, any comments about this podcast and anything more you want to um, uh, tell us about, any any further ideas for uh, for future episodes, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, to anybody listening, thank you for tuning in. Visit the website to watch it. It's better to see it. So um, thank you very much. And I'll see you next time.